Alright, welcome back to Christian Tactician Podcast. I am your host, Adam Yates. Grateful that you've taken a few moments again to spend some time uh, listening to me as I talk about this, uh, this thing that I am so very passionate about, about encouraging men to be true Christian men, Christ-like men, following after that example that Christ set, looking at His Word to help us understand the concepts and the things that will help us to be successful. I'm grateful for all of you who have contacted me and shared your gratitude for the efforts I'm making. I've said this in previous podcasts, you know, if, I, uh, if I'm not of use, then there's no point in me doing this. And so I hope that you continue to uh, send me your words of encouragement. If you are critical of the things that I have said, I'm willing to hear that. I am willing to get any of your feedback. I want to uh, be able to be as effective as possible. I know there are those of you who know me who are listening to this, but as I look at the the site for uh, this uh, the podcast host, you know, I can see that there are people all over this nation who are listening to me and for whatever reason found me, and uh, I appreciate if you continue listening. And again, I would encourage you to uh, reach out to me and contact me if uh, if you have anything that you would like for me to touch on or you have some thoughts or things you would like for me to consider. I want to uh, begin, as I always do, to encourage you to uh, realize, to understand, to take hope and comfort in the fact that God purposed you to be a man. He knew what He was doing when He created you. He didn't do it in ignorance, and he didn't do it out of accident. He did it because he had a will and a purpose for you. He did it because he knows how to take you to where he wants for you to be. If you are willing to bend your will to his, if you're willing to follow after the example of his son, he's willing to take you there. He's willing to help you there. God knew what he was doing. He purposed you to be a man. That's not anything to be ashamed of. That's not anything to feel bad about. That's not a tool that we use to beat people down. It's a tool that we use to lift people up. It's a tool that we use to glorify God. It's a tool that we use. It's an attribute. It's a, a matter of Christian life to fulfill God's purpose. And in doing so, it brings good blessing. God gives good blessing. If you've looked at my title, you will see that uh, my title here is What is a Man? I'll tell you, I just got back. I haven't put a podcast up in a couple weeks. I just got back from a trip to Honduras visiting our church people there. Had a really enjoyable time. I was able to visit so many people. Was able to uh, see such a a beautiful country. Uh, While I was there, we had a marriage retreat. I thought it was a really good marriage retreat. Was able to do some real good uh, studies, some good conversation, some good exercises there. There's a there's this thing in Honduras that, uh, you know, a lot of the world, and I realize uh, a lot of the world, it's been changing. You know, there was a time when it was one of uh, every two marriages was going to end in divorce, and we see that that number has greatly changed. But we've also seen that one of the reasons that number has greatly changed is because the amount of marriages has gone down. And that's no different in the country of Honduras. You know, you would think a Latin American predominantly Catholic nation would have a real high marriage rate, but actually they have a very low marriage rate. Uh, they have a lot of cohabitating, and consequently they have men and women who just up and leave, you know, multiple children with multiple partners, that sort of thing. You know, we discussed some of that in our marriage retreat, but the next week we had a, uh, a men's meeting, and I and I did this particular presentation here that I'm going to do on this podcast. I'm not going to claim all of the things here to be original. I've uh, been reading some books that have really piqued my interest and really given me some some things that I've thought about in terms of Christian manhood, and I take some of those points and things that I've been reading, and I kind of twist and morph them in a way that's understandable uh, to 
to me and uh, with the hope of, of conveying them to you to help you to understand, maybe look at um, manhood a little bit different than perhaps you had before. So what I want to do is I want to ask this question, what is a man? I asked this question there in Honduras to a group of men. And I was met with silence for quite some time. And if I were to ask it to a group of men here, I would bet that I'd be met with silence for quite some time. Eventually, I had some men who uh, opened up and they they gave some kind of generic answers, the kind that we would expect, you know, well, they're Christ-like and, uh, you know, they're responsible. And so I, what I want you to do, you're listening to this, I want you to take a moment and, and pause this podcast if you need to. And I want you to think about this question, what is a man? How would you answer it? What would your answer be? What do you consider to be a man? I want you to think here about how many times in movies, in literature, you know, we see, uh, you know, we get this scene of, you know, this dying father or something, you know, he's he's there and he's he's grasping a hold with, with his last breath, with his last energy, his son, you know, my son, be a man. We, we've seen it or some variant of that. We've read it in stories and things. We know it. And how many times maybe have we said that? We've given encouragement to somebody. I remember a police officer, I used to tell these guys that all the time, would you just be a man? So often the statement is all that's given. See, it might be hard for you to actually come up with some solid attributes. We, we make these statements to young boys and teenagers, and, and yet we often fail to give them something to strive for or, or a true understanding of what we mean. And, and maybe, perhaps it's because we don't know ourselves, maybe it wasn't taught to us, maybe we haven't studied it out, maybe we haven't sat and thought about it. What does it take to be a man? I'll tell a quick story here. Uh, for this this man presentation we were doing there in Honduras, I wanted to to do a uh, an activity because they've been doing having a study and they were doing some some manly activity. They were tying knots one time and they went to a brother's uh, house and they they dug a pond for him because he's going to raise fish and and they might do um, axe throwing one of the you know just kind of manly stuff. So I wanted to do that and I thought what what cooler and more manly thing than to make slings. Really not that complicated. You get some string, you get some leather. We went through uh, the the little town of Don Lee there, looking, looking, looking for some paracord, not not to be found anywhere. Found some some usable uh, rope and all that. And then we were looking for leather. We finally, down these dirty streets of Don Lee, finally walked into this uh, this wooden uh, rundown shack that uh, was kind of a, a cobbler, a shoe cobbler. You know, it's one of those things that you probably wouldn't think of here in the United States. And I asked this guy, hey, do you have any leather? And he gave us some leather for it. So we were all prepared. We had the uh, the string and the leather. That day came, we did the presentation. I said, we're going to make slings, showed them how to do it. You know, when these guys made their slings, we stepped outside. There was something that I had to do, is I had to show these guys how to throw a stone with a sling. Because even though we can probably imagine in our mind what David must have done when he's flinging it, it's actually a little bit more complicated than you would think. You know, it's not about moving your arm, it's about moving the rock. And how do you, you know, where do you let go? And how do you do all these things? And there's a way to do it. If I didn't give those guys any instruction, if I didn't give them any points to try to to accomplish, you know, this is how you need to hold your strings. This is where, you know, this is how I hold it like this. And then, you know, this is the direction that I swing it and why. And I step and I throw and I do, you know, and, and I can usually hit pretty close to what I'm aiming at. But, you know, if I never gave them any instruction, I could never hope for them by any other means than dumb luck to be able to hit what they were aiming at. You know, it's like giving somebody who's never shot a gun a gun and saying, here, shoot a bullseye. And yet I think sometimes we do that. And, and I think I've been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that as a minister. I've been guilty of that of a, of a guy who's trying to be a mentor, encouraging young men to be godly men and not giving them some real specifics. And so I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how do I 
go from telling somebody, be a man, to letting them know what, what I'm talking about. How often have we heard it said by somebody, you know, I'm trying to be a man. I'm trying. But when we look at their life, we see that they clearly know how, they have no idea what the basics of it are. And, and who's to blame for it? You know, as fathers, as men, as uncles, grandpas, youth leaders, that sort of thing, I, I think we're possibly to blame for this because we're not giving that clear that clear example, that clear direction, that clear vision of, of what a man is. And instead, the world, and I think Satan, is giving that. And and if you were to go throughout this world and you were to begin asking, you know, it would be, what is a man? Well, you know, a man has got a penis. And you already know my thoughts on that. That makes you a male. Oh, a man is someone who has children. No, just means that you're capable of reproducing. What What is a man? You know, well, a man's someone who has a job and provides. Well, that's only part of it, right? Because you can work and you can make sure that your family has food in their stomach and clothes on their back and a roof over their head and have never truly provided for them. So that doesn't make a man either. It's a, it's a, it's a more detailed look at, at some of these things. And so what, what do we want to do? What should we be doing? You know, what am I going to begin doing more ardently with my sons? I want to give them a picture. I want to give them a picture. And I want them, if I ask them, my sons, what are a man? These are the four things I'm, I'm hoping to hear from them. And I have to begin teaching them and teaching them the concepts and helping them understand. So here it is. Four things that I believe make a man. A man does not stand idly by. A man doesn't just sit there and stand idly by. And we're going to, I'm going to expand on these things. A man accepts and desires responsibility. Uh, we've talked about that some, and I want to expand on a little bit more in this podcast. A man leads from the front, and a man expects a greater reward from God. Has to go to motivation. So I want to begin talking about this, and so I want to talk about this first one. Uh, this first uh, aspect that I want to talk about today, a man does not stand idly by. I want to read a story here. You, If you're not a, a, a biblical scholar, that's okay. If you're someone who hasn't spent a lot of time reading in the scriptures, it's all right. If I tell this story here and you've never heard it, great. I'm going to encourage you to go and read it. But there was a man, his name was Eli, and he was he was a high priest in the temple. Eli had a bunch of sons, and they were grown men. And Eli was visited by a prophet. And this prophet told Eli, he said, hey, the Lord is telling me that you need to correct your sons. See, your sons are going in, and there was this description that was given of what they were doing. Amongst other things, they were going in, and part of that sacrifice that was to be given to God, you know, they were going in and they were taking uh, from it. They were taking the best of it. They were taking what truly wasn't there. So they were stealing from God. And the other thing that they were doing is they were going and they were sleeping with women. They were sleeping with multiple women. These things that were detestable to God, the sons of the high priest were doing. And so this prophet comes to Eli and he and he warns him. He says, the, the Lord tells you, you better address your sons. They are doing these things that they ought not to be doing. You need to address your sons. And so what happened? You know, if you if you read there, you know that Eli went and he told his sons, he says, why are you doing this? You know, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in, in, in the Lord's house. And yet that was all the farther he went. And as you continue reading, you'll recognize that the Lord expected Eli to do more than what he did. And so if we read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read about there was this young boy, his name was Samuel, and Samuel was going to end up becoming a great prophet of Israel. But when he was just a little boy, his, his mother uh, did as was uh, somewhat common and, and gave him over to the high priest, and he began to, to help with the high priest in, in, in the service of God. And he had a dream one night, or he woke up and he heard, he heard uh, the voice of the Lord calling him several times, and, and he mistook it for Eli a couple times, went to Eli and finally and said, hey, were you calling me? 
Eli says, no, I wasn't calling you. Finally, Eli says, well, it must have been the Lord. So when you, if you hear that voice again, you say, Lord, I'm, I'm listening. You go ahead and say what you need to say. And so the Lord did. He spoke to Samuel. And he said, and I'm going to read here in 1 Samuel chapter 3, I'm going to read verses uh, 11 through 14. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day, I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. So the Lord, uh, he shared these things with Samuel, and Samuel, as a child, had to tell this to Eli. The Lord says, because you have stood idly by, because you knew that your sons were doing these things that they ought not to have been done, and yet you did not restrain them, Oh, you may have said, hey, sons, don't do that. But you didn't take the, the steps and the stance of stopping them from doing this detestable thing. The Lord said, I'm going to wipe your house off the face of the earth. There's not going to be a sacrifice that's going to atone for the things that have been done. Because I told you, you do not stand idly by. You know, this is something that uh, we need to consider in our life. You know, and I've talked about this before when it comes to the responsibility that you have for other people. You do have some responsibility. You have responsibility to speak up for what's right. You have responsibility to, to stand before danger, before spiritual difficulties. You have a responsibility to say when something is not right. You have a responsibility to come to the defense. I remember a time when I was sitting in a Burger King. I was maybe 22 years old. I was sitting in a Burger King and I was eating. And there was a man and a woman sitting across from me. And I kept overhearing because their their conversation kept getting louder and louder. And this man began berating this woman. And as I looked over, I saw he had taken a newspaper that he had rolled up and he smacked her in the head like you would do with a dog. As I was looking at this, I looked around and the room was full of men. There were there were uh, men on there, obviously on their lunch break and things like that who were there construction and everybody just sat there and looked and then continued eating. And so I stood up and I confronted this man who was a utter coward. And he tried to, you know, I'm not going to tell war stories. We didn't fight, but he backed off and left and left that woman there. But I was amazed that there were men there. And, and I was, uh, what was it amazing to me? I was the youngest guy there as I looked around and kind of took, took note of who was there. And yet no one was willing to say anything. They stood idly by. You know, is that what men are called to do? Absolutely not. I want to read another story of a man who did not stand idly by, who saw a problem and who he handled it. And I'm going to read in Numbers chapter 25, and I'm going to read 6 through 8. And so let's just, we, we as we understand what's going on here, you know that the Israelites come into a place and, and the Lord had told them, he said, hey, there are people of Moab there. You need to stay away from them. Don't interact with the Moabites. Don't uh, uh, interact with, with these people here um, because they're going to do detestable things. And so what happened? Well, like humans always do, you put a challenge in front of them. They say, oh yeah, you can't tell me what to do. And so what happened? Numbers 25, verses 6 through 8. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought into his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust them both through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And we look at this and clearly what was going on. There was a sexual interaction going there. The people who they had gone into were a people who, who worshiped gods, who were lar largely gods of sexual impropriety and indecency and those things, which is uh, which was common throughout the Old Testament and I believe is still common today. And the Lord 
had told him, don't even be a part of it. And here you saw a man and he came in and he says, he brought in this woman, this whore. And he says, he brought her right in through the middle of the, of the, of the whole people of Israel. You know, people saw it. They saw it and they knew what God had said. And he took her into his tent and he began to do this detestable thing with her. Now, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, he saw it and he said, I am not going to stand idly by. The Lord said, if we do this thing, we are going to be cursed. And so he went in and he killed both of them and he handled it and he did not stand idly by. Am I encouraging homicide? No, I'm not. What am I encouraging you to do? I'm encouraging you to look at those people who you're responsible for and look at your own life. We talked about this when it came to pornography and masturbation. You have to take care of the problems that you have. You cannot just look at them and throw up your hands and say, it's too hard, it's too difficult, you know, it's not really a problem. You need to have this, this look at yourself and consider where you're at. Am I walking the way I'm supposed to? And if not, don't stand idly by. You have an eternal soul that will one day be judged. Don't stand idly by. Fathers, if there's something going on in your house with your children, do not stand idly by. I'm going to encourage you to ask the Lord for how you should handle these things so that we don't go in like a raging bull, that we can handle them with love, but that we can be clear of what things are acceptable and are not acceptable to God. That if there is an assault coming by Satan, that we look toward the innocent. We look to stop those things from happening. You know, we protect those who are our responsibility and that we don't stand idly by. Uh, and I'm, and I'm gonna, not going to go any farther in this podcast. Again, in future ones, I hope to take uh, each of these pieces that I've talked about in a lot of these podcasts and break them down even more and, and, and look at them a little further. But I want you to think about that and look at you and yourself. Look in your life. Are you accomplishing this? Or are there things that you've decided, ah, I don't want to address that. I don't want to touch that. Now, there's a risk that that, that that could not turn out well. Do we ignore things that we ought not to ignore? You know, there's something interesting uh, that that I think, and I didn't read it here, but you know, when, when Satan tempted Eve and she ate of, of whatever that fruit was, if you look at the way it was written in English, and it's not written this way in Spanish. I found that out when I was there in Honduras. But in English, it says that she gave to her husband who was with her, kind of giving the implication in my mind that Adam was there watching as Satan was tempting Eve rather than chopping his head off with a hoe. I want to encourage you. A man does not stand idly by. Let's talk about this second one. A man accepts and desires responsibility. Now here is a problem throughout our entire world. And uh, it's a problem that, that you know, we, we, we want to enjoy ourselves. We want to fulfill our own lusts and our own pleasures. We want to do all this. We don't, we don't want responsibility. I don't want to make a commitment, right? I have this happen. I, I've had this happen so many times. It's frustrating. You know, you ask some, some guy, a friend or something like that, Hey, you want to do something on Friday? Something like that. I don't know. I, I don't know what I got going on. Well, if you make plans with me, then you know what's going on. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, we have a problem. Men don't want to make a commitment. We don't want to accept responsibility. How many, you know, uh, there, there's this huge, huge number of single mothers, of children growing up without a father in their life. And so often, I'm not saying it, it's not two people's responsibility. You know, if, if you're divorced, if uh, that's a lot that you've fallen into, or, you, you know, or your, your parents are divorced and you're thinking about your father, I, I, I'm not going to say that um, it's all your father's fault. But, you know, scripturally, I do believe it's the man's responsibility to continue pressing forward to try to address these things. We have to accept responsibility. And furthermore, I think a man should desire responsibility. You know, I look at the scripture where Isaiah is having this this vision, and he sees God on the throne, and God says, who are we going to send? Who is going to go and speak for me? And Isaiah stands up, and he says, here I am. Send me. I'm willing. 
I'm willing to do it. And I hope that you are that you are looking at that in your life, and I hope you're finding some motivation. You know, are there things in your life that you feel the, the draw? I think a true Christian man has a desire of responsibility. He wants to live up to the responsibility that Christ showed. You know, Christ took responsibility over everybody. He was willing to commit fully, and we as men should uh, desire and accept responsibility. I want to read a scripture here. And, and this is what's hard, and this is why I think sometimes we're non-committal. We don't want to do it because there are some very serious uh, things that can happen. And I want to look in Scripture here. If you look in Joshua in the sixth chapter, Joshua and the people are marching around Jericho, and we all know that story. And and we we probably, as I said that, you remember the song, right? And the walls came tumbling down. And if you look at what it was that happened, you know, the Lord told Joshua, He says, "When the walls come down, the only thing that you take is going to be the gold and the silver. That's going to go because we're going to capture that, and that's someday." going to go for the tabernacle. Everything else, the people will burn. And so they went in, the walls fell down, and and they had victory there. And after they went to this other town called, uh, I'm going to pronounce it A-I. It's spelled A-I. A-I. And, uh, and a group of men went there, and you know, they had gone with the expectation. God said, I'm going to send you into this land of Israel, and you are going to overwhelm the people who are there, and everyone is going to know who Israel is, and you are going to be unstoppable so long as you're following me. And so these, this, uh, this uh, contingent of the army went to Ai, and they went in there, and guess what happened? They were beaten. They were driven back, and some men died. And they came back, and they told Joshua, who was the leader, and Joshua fell, fell on his face and threw himself before the Lord, and he said, what is going on, Lord? What is going on here? You know, now the people are going to think that we're weak. You said that you would be with us. And the Lord, it's kind of kind of interesting to look at what he says. The Lord basically tells him, get off your face and do something. He says, you know what I said, that if you guys did a detestable thing, if you took something you weren't supposed to, that you were going to fail. And now clearly that's what's happened. So go and figure out who touched something that they should not have done. Touched something and took something they shouldn't have. And so Joshua chapter 7, we're going to look and see what happens here. Joshua chapter 7, I'm going to read verse 16 through 21, and then I'm going to talk about it a little bit because this isn't the full of the story, but this will give you a pretty good idea. So Joshua chapter 7, verse 16. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought by his household a man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done, and hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua, and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold, fifty shekels in weight. Then I coveted them, and I took them. And behold, they're hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. And so what Joshua did is he sent some men to this man's tent, and sure enough, they found those things. And because he took those things, I believe it was 36 men were killed in the attack on Ai. But what was it that happened? You know, this man, he made this decision. And he did it after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, 
And, you know, he saw something. He saw a garment that he wanted, and he saw something that was valuable, and he took it. He took it for himself. So what is it that happened there? Joshua took Achan, and he took his family, and all of his possessions, and all of his animals, and he took them down into a valley, and the house of Israel stoned them until they were dead, and burned the, uh, what was left, and made a pile of rocks there. And why did he do it? Because he had done something detestable before the Lord. Responsibility. You know, this is something that I've talked about before. I've talked about it in the fact that, you know, the decisions we make, it affects those around us. And that's perhaps one reason why men are reluctant to. And maybe it's because they haven't been taught, and they haven't looked to see what true responsibility is. Or maybe they haven't considered the wonderful blessings that come when you accept responsibility for your role that God has given you, and you labor with all of your might to accomplish it. Because God calls us to perfection, but I believe He also is realistic and that He knows we can't achieve perfection. What is He looking for us to do? He's looking for us to try. And I want to read here. I want to read in Mosiah in the Book of Mormon, chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 200 to 205. And we're going to read a story here. And in this story here, there's, there's these, this man named Alma. His father was the high priest. And there were these sons, these four sons, who were the sons of the king, Mosiah. And what were they doing? You know, they had a godly father who was a king, and Alma had a godly father who was the leader of the church there. And what did these men do? They went about trying to destroy the people of the church, trying to deceive them, causing problem, causing mischief, hurting people. They were enemies of God. And then we are going, they were going somewhere, and you know, an angel of the Lord stopped them and shook the ground and told them and spoke to Alma and said, if you want to be destroyed yourself, that's fine. You leave my church alone. And Alma had this converting experience that was amazing, and these sons of Mosiah had this converting experience, which was amazing. And now let's look at what happened. We talk about responsibility in all of its aspects. Mosiah chapter 11, verse 200. And now it came to pass that Alma began from this time forward to teach the people, and those which were with him at the time that the angel appeared unto them, traveling round about the land, publishing to all the people the things which they had heard and seen, and preaching the word of God in much tribulation, being greatly persecuted by those which were unbelievers, being smitten of them. But notwithstanding all this, they did impart much consolation to the church, confirming their faith, and exhorting them with long suffering and much travail to keep the commandments of God. And the four of them were the sons of Mosiah, and their names, their names were Ammon, Ammon, and Aaron, and Omner, and Himni, and these were the names of the sons of Mosiah. And after that they had traveled throughout all the land of Zarahemla, and among all the people which were under the, the reign of King Mosiah, zealously striving to repair all the injuries which they had done to the church, confessing all their sins, and publishing all the things which they had seen, and explaining the prophecies and the scriptures to all who desired to hear them. What did these men do? They made grave mistakes, and yet they took responsibility for it, and they went and they tried to undo the mistakes that they did, confessing their sins. It says that they were beaten because of, of those people who, who were against the church and who were once probably on their side, and they, were, they endured a physical and emotional verbal abuse. They went and they confessed all those things that they had done. They took responsibility for their actions, and they took responsibility for the experience they had and what they felt like they had to do from that point on. See, because for them, when the Lord had given them such a great change in their life, they no longer had an option to stand idly by. They no longer had an option to not accept responsibility for what the Lord had done or the place that He had put them on this earth. They had to act. They felt compelled to act. It was something deep within them. And this is what we are to be as men. 
There should be something deep within you that wants to be uh, responsible for things, that wants to have something that's worth value to care for, whether it's a, a woman, a wife, whether it's children, whether it's a job, whether it's a, a care over the, the lives of other people. These are godly things. A man accepts and desires responsibility. Desires responsibility. You know, perhaps you're a man who's listening to this who has made some mistakes in your life. Maybe you are a father and yet you're not married. Maybe your relationship with that mother of your child has dissolved. We know these things happen. Do you take responsibility for that? Or is it out of sight, out of mind? Do you take responsibilities, guys, when you have made a mistake? Do you lead asking forgiveness? Husbands, when you've hurt your wives, are you quick to go to them? take responsibility? Do you make sure that you care for the physical, the temporal needs of your family, but also the spiritual ones? Because God has called you to that as a man. Do you accept that responsibility? We'll, uh, we'll build on this in a future podcast because it's, it's not enough for me to cover it in three or four minutes here, but I want you to consider that, that a man desires and accepts responsibility. A boy or a child, they live for today. They don't want to commit Unfortunately, I know a lot of men or boys or males who have the equipment, but no desire to commit to anything, not to Christ, not to a church group, not to a woman, a wife, not to their children, not to their friends. And this is an enormous failure. Our world is suffering because of it. Don't be a part of that. Don't be a part of that. A man leads from the front. I'm, I, uh, as I was flying home, I've been you know reading these books, and I read again, I've been reading through the book Band of Brothers. Many of you have probably watched the, the miniseries that HBO did, you know, really well done, and I, and I love the interviews from the last, the last one, the interviews with these guys. Uh, the book, as you would, as you would imagine, is, is even better. And you know, there's this, there's this picture you see throughout the, the uh, series, and it clearly it's throughout the books, of their leader. Um, at the end, he was a major, Major Richard Winters. But you know, when he started, he was a first lieutenant. But you know, in the words and in the uh, the stories and all these things of these men who had gone through these horrific things, parachuting into France on D-Day and uh, parachuting into Holland and fighting in the Battle of the Bulge and all of these things, you know, they said it over and over and over again. Richard Winters, lieutenant, then captain, then major Winters, he was a true leader because he didn't tell you what to do. He did it. He led from the front. You know, he had said it there in his memoirs and some of the things he said, you know, I, I couldn't just go and send those men to do it. I had to be the one to go first. And he did this, uh, what led this attack against a, a bunch of artillery batteries and a, an artillery battery that was firing down on Utah Beach. And he says, you know, he told the guys the plan and, and and it would have been reasonable because at that point he wasn't in charge of of the whole company, but he was, you know, they'd lost a lot of men. And actually at that time they had lost the commanding officer of Easy Company. Nobody knew it at that time. Uh, and so he was in charge of Easy Company, unbeknownst to him. Had he died, though, it would have been another void at any rate. But he said, you know, I couldn't allow my men to go and do something that I was not willing to do. And so he led the assault on these four artillery pieces that were that were just annihilating uh, the men who were landing on Utah Beach. And every one of those men attributes uh, of under his command says that, you know, this he was a true leader because he led from the front. He wasn't a man who sat back uh, in, in the tent, in the command post, and just gave orders and expected everybody to do it, and he never got his fingers dirty or anything like that. No, he was a man who led from the front. And we look in the scriptures and we see, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You know the story of David and Goliath? Before it was David and Goliath, you know what that story was? That story was Saul and Goliath. It was King Saul and Goliath. You know, if you look at what was going on there, 
you know, you had these two armies come together, and they were champions of either army who were supposed to go against each other. Who should have been the champion of Israel? Who was the one who was chosen by God to lead God's people? It was Saul at that point, wasn't it? He was the king. He was the one who didn't have the faith and he didn't have the courage. He should have been the one to walk out there and fight Goliath. Why? Because he was the king of the people of God, and yet Saul refused to lead. In fact, David got there and Saul was hanging out in his tent there, and David said, why is nobody addressing this? Do we not know who we are? We are God's people. This guy's some uncircumcised Philistine, and we're going to listen to him? And Saul was more than willing to say, well, yeah, but you know, this guy's really big. Everybody's afraid of him. And David says, I'll do it. I'll lead from the front. I know who I believe in, and I trust that he's able to accomplish these things in me. I realize as I say that, you're going to think, well, had he done that, it would have frustrated everything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that the responsibility there to be the leader was Saul's, and Saul didn't do it. And David took his rightful place. It was his prophesied place. It's where he should have been. But if you look at failures, it shouldn't have been David and Goliath. Saul didn't lead. But let's look at a man who was willing to to lead. And, and before we do this, I, you know, what's one reason why we don't want to be leaders? Leaders are criticized, aren't they? Everybody has an opinion. You don't think so? Turn on the news and think of how everybody looks at Donald Trump. Like him, hate him, doesn't matter. Is there another man who who every breath, every sentence, every time he wipes his nose is more criticized than him right now? Being a leader sometimes sucks. Everyone has an opinion, and oftentimes they're willing to share it with you openly and blatantly. And and you know, oftentimes, you know, I've had people come and criticize me when I've when I've tried to lead and make decisions. You know, it's true. You can't please everyone. You try to make good decisions led by God. But you know, not everyone's going to be happy about it. But you know, if you if you approach life and if you approach your responsibility as a man to lead from the front prayerfully, you ask God to guide you in decisions to stop you from speaking when you ought not to speak. Then we should walk with confidence that God's there. Part of being a leader is is if we've accidentally stomped on somebody's toes, we're willing to go and talk to them about it. But it sucks being a leader because everybody is a critic, aren't they? We love to criticize, don't we? You know, there's that kid's movie, Ratatouille. You've probably seen it. Maybe you haven't. And and there's this uh, man, he's a food critic. And at the end, he's, he's writing this thing because his heart has changed. He said, it's easy being a food critic because somebody offers up their very best and it's entertaining for me to tear them apart. And that's one reason why we don't want to be leaders, isn't it? And yet we must. We must be a leader, and we must be a visible leader. We do it for the sake of our wife, of our children. We're willing to do it because there are those who are looking at us. They expect us to be a leader. Now, I want to read about a man who wasn't afraid of what everybody else was saying. And if you haven't, uh, you know, there's not much dedicated to this man in Scripture, but there's this man, his name is Caleb. And Caleb was one of the 12 spies who went into uh, Israel to spy it out. Joshua was with him. Israel had come across the, from Egypt, across the Red Sea, through the desert, and had arrived on the borders of Israel. And they sent 12 men in to go in for 40 days and to look over Israel. And when they came out, they came out with these phenomenal stories. This place is everything that God promised it would be. They're, I mean, the, the, it's flowing with milk and honey. Everything's growing everywhere. We brought these this, this cluster of grapes that we had to carry between a big old huge branch. It was so heavy. This is everything God promised us. And so let's read here in Numbers chapter 13, 
beginning in verse 27. This is the spies. They told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sendest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land. The cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land in the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. The children of Anak, giants. These men were terrified, terrified of giants, terrified of the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, all of these things. You know, they, they stood before the people and before Moses. They said, everything God promised us was true, but we can't do it. These 12 men created a murmur with all the people, and the people were inflamed. And yet one man stood up and said, hey, hang on. I have seen the promise of God, and I am convicted by it, and I am willing right now to lead this people to go and accomplish the thing the Lord asked us to do. We are able to do this. Caleb was willing to lead. And there was, I don't know how many people, I've, I've read accounts, I think there might have been a million, a million Israelites screaming and saying, it's better if we go back to Egypt than to go in there and be stomped to death by a bunch of giants. That's when it sucks to be a leader, isn't it? But why was Caleb unafraid? Because he had seen the promise of God, and he knew where he was supposed to go, and he was going to lead to it. That's a man. Consider that. Are you leading and are you leading from the front? Can people see your leadership? Can people see that you are convicted of and you are, are looking to walk in the direction that God wants you to? Are you leading your family? Are you leading them in prayer? Are you leading them in study? Are you leading them in having a vision for their future? Are you encouraging your wife? Are you helping your family to see what you want for them to be? Are you a leader in your community? Or are you someone who is always content to sit back, to not participate, let somebody else do it? Are you leading when it comes to asking and giving forgiveness? Are you leading in these spiritual things that we're called to? Or are you afraid of the critics? Do you not want to commit? A man leads from the front. This last aspect I want to talk about here. A man expects a greater reward from God. Really, what this is talking about, what motivates you? What motivates you to endure all of the hardship, the difficulty? As a leader, what is it that motivates you to deal with the criticism, with the frustration, with the stress and the burden of it? What is it that motivates you to fight, to fight sin, to fight uh, doubt, to fight troubles in your life and the lives of those around you? What motivates you? What motivates you to be willing to be weary? You know, if we don't have an expectation of something beyond us, of something beyond us that God has promised and that he is working us towards. If we don't have an expectation of us, then why would we not simply live for today? If I didn't have an expectation that the Lord promises that those who live their life following after him, enduring to the end, walking faithful to the end, if I didn't have that belief, then why wouldn't I just go and sleep with every woman who would give me the time of day because it makes me feel good? Why, why wouldn't we do all these things? A man has an expectation of something greater from God, greater than what Satan can offer us for a few moments, greater than what this world can offer us in promotions, 
and in bonuses, in overtimes, and in vacations, greater than what this world's uh, accomplishments can offer us. Every person in this world looks at us because we're the best singer, we're the best actor, the best football player, and all those things. You know, those things will not go with us. But if you're not convicted of that, then you might as well live for today, and you will live empty. Paul says that I am convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what is before us, and I'm clearly paraphrasing. He says, I'm convinced that this battle is worthy of the victory that is promised us. I had this experience one time, and it came because my daughter, in the middle of a service, you know, a service I wanted to be a part of at church, she was just a little baby, and she was just angry. And I, and I took her back to the cry room as the service was going on, and I really want to be a part of it. And, and, you know, and I thought, I could just give up, walk out, go home. But instead, I thought, no, no, I'm, I'm going to try to get her to sleep. I'm going to calm myself down, no matter how much she screams at me and all that, you know. And it was a little bit of a battle. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking, you know, if I get her to sleep, I can get back in there. And I can listen to the service, and I can be encouraged and strengthened. And, and I had this thought come into my mind, you know, the, the victory is worthy of the battle. If we are uh, convinced that there's victory in Christ and victory eternally, then it's worth fighting for. Then the sufferings that we're going through, the frustrations, the long nights, the conversations that might be uncomfortable, the eyes of the world, the glaring eye of people who say that this podcast and everything it stands for is hateful and chauvinistic and, you know, leading people, you know, all these things, the glaring eye of the world. If I have an expectation of something greater for God, then this battle is worthy of the victory that I believe will come. I want to read a scripture here, Moroni in the Book of Mormon, Moroni, I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. And so this is Moroni's father, Mormon, and, and he's talking about the, there's this thing that's going on is that uh, this civilization is coming to an end, at least the Nephites are, because they just refuse to follow God, and there's this continual warfare there. And Mormon, he's, he's explaining these things to his son in a letter. And he's, he's telling his son, I'm, I'm never going to see you again. We're going to be destroyed. I know this. But I have to tell you these things, and I have to give you this encouragement. And so Moroni chapter 9, I'm going to read 4 through 6. It says, he's telling his son Moroni, he says, Behold, I'm laboring with them, laboring with the people who he's with. I'm laboring with them continually. And when I speak the word of God with sharpness, they tremble and anger against me. And when I use no sharpness, they harden their hearts against it. Wherefore, I fear, lest the Spirit of the Lord hath ceased striving with them. For so exceedingly do they anger, that it seemeth to me that they have no fear of death. For they have lost their love one towards another, and they thirst after blood and revenge continually. So he lays out this dreary thing. He says, I'm still trying to do the work of a minister. I'm still trying to encourage them to turn from these evil ways. But I think they're incapable of the Lord touching them at this point because they're so filled with anger and hate and desire for bloodlust and all of these things. But then he makes this statement. And now, my beloved son, notwithstanding their hardness, let us labor diligently. For if we should cease to labor, then we should be brought under condemnation. For we have a labor to perform while in this tabernacle of clay, that we might conquer the enemy of all righteousness and rest our souls in the kingdom of God. You know, he tells his son, it doesn't matter what else is going on out there. These people, they hate us. They're hard against us. They want to destroy us. They're not listening. I preach. I tell them these experiences I've had, how God has worked with me, that if they don't change, they're going to die, and it's going to be terrible for them. And they don't care. They don't want to hear. They hate me for it. No one's listening. We sometimes feel like this, don't we? 
I can't make any effort with my wife. I can't make any effort with my children. No one listens to me when I try to be a good example at work. I try to do the right things, and it seems to be for nothing. And yet this man tells his son, we cannot stop laboring for God. Because if we do, we'll be condemned for not doing what the Lord called us to do. He says, we have a labor to perform. We have a job to do. We have a responsibility that is ours to conquer the enemy of righteousness, Satan, who's looking to destroy righteousness. And then here's the expectation to rest our souls in the kingdom of God. If a man doesn't expect a greater reward from God, then there's no reason to be a man. If you don't have an expectation that there is a victory that is worthy of the battle of this life, the battle against Satan, the battle against death, if you don't have that expectation, then there's no point. Then live for today. Do what makes you feel best at the expense of anyone else because it doesn't really matter. So I want you to consider these four things I've shared today. A man does not stand idly by. A man accepts and desires responsibility. A man leads from the front. A man expects a greater reward from God. Arise from the dust and be men.